0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, the state of downtown Vancouver with the downtown Vancouver BIA. Plus, our Asia 360 segment has some recommendations for Canada's AI strategy in Asia. Here at BIV, we are accepting nominations for a number of awards programs. These include the BC CEO Awards, Influential Women in Business, and 40 Under 40. You can also nominate Chief Technology and Innovation Officers for our inaugural BC CTO Awards. Applications are now open. Visit biv.com slash events for details. The Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association recently released the inaugural State of Downtown report. Charles Gauthier, president and CEO of the DVBIA, joins me in studio today to talk more about it. Charles, good to have you on.
1: Great, thanks for having me here.
0: I understand this kind of report is fairly common in the U.S., but it's kind of a new concept in Canada.
1: Yes, uh, we've been tracking uh, these kinds of reports for quite a while, and I've wanted to do it uh, for a number of years, and. Uh, just didn't have uh, the resources or the right uh, staff in place uh, to get this done. So uh, it has been a, uh, a labor of love for the last uh, <laughs> nine months uh, by specifically three of my uh, staff team, and uh, you know pulled it together, and uh, we're able to release this uh, first annual report.
0: What really stands out to you about some of the findings and information captured in the report?
1: Well, even. For someone like myself that's uh, been in the position with the organization for just over 27 years, uh, there was lots of information that uh, I wasn't aware of or I'd lost track of. But things like uh, the amount of growth that's happened in the downtown area in regards to residential population, uh, 12% growth uh, exceeded uh, what the city of Vancouver as a whole had, which was 3% between the years of uh, 2011 and 2016. I mean, we kind of know that downtown is growing mm-hmm. uh, from a residential perspective, uh, but to see the numbers, uh, you know, obviously confirms that and shows uh, actually how 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 much growth has happened, double-digit growth uh, downtown.
0: And when you look at some of the industries too, I mean, how the cruise terminal is doing, how many conferences are coming to Vancouver, I think growth is almost a perfect way to sum up the state of downtown at this point in time, it looks like everything's growing almost.
1: Yeah, I would say it's really unprecedented growth. uh, And the one area I would point to is just the amount of uh, commercial office space that's under construction right now. Uh, in the downtown area, and then specifically within the DVBIA's 90 block district, you know, it's it's fairly concentrated there. So even though we've said it's over 4 million square feet, uh, we were corrected last week when we actually launched the State of the Down, Downtown Report that it's actually 5.1 million square feet of office space that's being built in the downtown area. So that was like a more recent announcement about new um, growth that's being planned or new office space that's being built. Uh, So this is unprecedented uh, in my career here with the organization. And uh, the other thing is it's going to add 20,000 new employees in the downtown area between uh, uh, over the course of the next uh, four to five years.
0: 5.1 million is a big number. How much of that is already accounted for to your best estimation?
1: Uh, All of it. It's uh, it's all been approved and uh, it's approved or uh, under construction. Um, and again, it's, uh, it's going to be brought in over the course of the next five years. It's all, all happening at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that allows, uh, you know, great introduction of new office space into the market. And it does provide uh, phenomenal opportunities for existing companies that have been asking for uh, many years uh, for new office space. Uh, they're just outgrowing uh, their space, or they're also looking for more up-to-date uh, locations.
0: Do you have a sense of how much of it will be available to the market versus how much is, say, spearheaded by Amazon where they're adding more square yeah. footage, but it's not available to anyone?
1: Yeah. The last number I heard, and this is not in the state of downtown mm-hmm. report, is that 50% of it is uh, is leased. Okay. So there's, you know, there are opportunities, but uh, again, to have, uh, you know, spec office uh, space being constructed, uh, if you had asked, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, if this would ever happen in downtown Vancouver, I would have said not likely.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So it's changed. What do you think has changed, really? You mentioned you've been with the BIA 27 years or so. How has the downtown core really evolved, even in the last 10 years?
1: Yeah. So I think certainly uh, the tech sector has uh, grown phenomenally, and, uh, you know, the Amazons and Microsofts and Sony Imageworks. I mean, the list can go on. We all also identify in the state of downtown report that particular aspect of, uh, you know, how Vancouver is definitely a great location for those tech companies uh, to come here and to grow and startups are actually happening here as well. So I just think that it's just been a great environment for for that growth. Um, last number I heard is that the tech sector is representing about 40% of the growth that we're experiencing in the downtown area. Um, and again, these are great numbers because it's attracting uh, talent from all over the world. Uh, to come and work here. And that also changes uh, the look and feel of the downtown. You know, we're much more representative of what the world looks like uh, in downtown Vancouver and in the region as a whole than perhaps many other cities in North America.
0: It's true. If you go to Singapore, Tokyo, Hong Kong, you'll very easily see the biggest names on the planet on buildings. You're starting to see that more and more, like Microsoft popping up on our buildings. It's interesting to see that.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's an ecosystem as well, if they're doing well. Uh, then certainly companies that are servicing those companies, providing goods and services, they're going to do well. So just think about the lawyers and the engineers and the accountants. Uh, So it really helps provide uh, additional uh, work uh, for for those businesses and hence they're growing as well. Uh, So it's, um, like I said, it's unprecedented and I think it bodes very well for downtown uh, in the upcoming decade.
0: All of this growth is a very good thing on many fronts, but it can bring some pain points like congestion, which I know the BIA has been very vocal about. That's something that needs to be addressed. And adding 20,000 new jobs potentially with the square footage, that's a lot more people. What is the state of our transportation systems in the core?
1: Yeah, and I, I would say that TransLink is very aware of uh, the, those challenges and and I think um, really working diligently to uh, address those issues I mean we know ridership is is up and certainly the demand for more transit services continues to increase and uh, you know what it requires is obviously federal and provincial funding to come to the table and uh, we have a federal election coming up so it's really important for all of us uh, as voters uh, to pay attention to the issues and what the politicians are going to be promising us. And we should be asking for ways to uh, to address the congestion that we're currently experiencing, not if you're driving your car, but how do we uh, address this increasing demand for, uh, for public transit?
0: Mm-hmm. We may be last in ride hailing, but we're first in car sharing in North America, which is an interesting finding in the report. How do you think that's impacted livability and movement in downtown?
1: Uh, I think it's actually helped because, you know, in the absence of having, uh, you know, uh, the top type of public transit system that we all kind of would want to see when we experience, uh, those kinds of things in cities like, uh, uh, Paris or Berlin or or uh, New York City, um, just to name a few, and they're much bigger cities than we are. Um, you know, certainly ride sharing is playing a key component in helping people to get around. Um, you know, we obviously know that we have a housing affordability crisis. Um, we don't have the right mix of housing within our city. Um, we also identified homelessness as an ongoing issue uh, that we need to Start to tackle. I heard a number yesterday, which just shocked me. But in Los Angeles, there's 40,000 homeless people. Now, granted, it's a much bigger city than Vancouver, but you know, I I I shudder uh, to think that we can get into numbers like that. I don't think we would. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that becomes a problem that uh, almost is not solvable, right? Of course.
0: Yeah. Thinking on that affordability piece, he's talking about some of the, the big companies that are players in the downtown core. I wonder how small businesses are faring when it comes to some of these affordability issues.
1: Yeah. So we've seen uh, office rents go up uh, as a result of the fact that there's an inana- inadequate supply of job space. Um, you know, I can tell talked about our story specifically, but, you know, we've just renewed our lease and we did it early, Mm. uh, one year early. And we did it primarily because, you know, we know that there's this crunch uh, that's occurring. And so, uh, you know, our rent went up uh, by 30% as a result of the fact that there's inadequate supply. So that obviously is probably what other businesses are experiencing if their leases uh, are coming up at roughly the same time. And they have to make a, a difficult decision as to whether or not they, they're going to stay downtown. Uh, of course, what we're trying to highlight in the State of Downtown report is that uh, there's going to be a much bigger customer and client base that's going to be available uh, if you do stay downtown. Mm. Uh, you know, so certainly we're hopeful that restaurants and bars and nightclubs and retailers uh, will see uh, that growth and uh, and remain uh, within the downtown area, in spite of the fact that their leases might uh might go up
0: well in terms of a, a culture and a healthy economy, you want that differentiation too you want that diversity in terms of what you can go to you don't just want big chains, although that appeals to some, you want some of the smaller players too
1: yeah, and that's uh you know a challenge uh you know independent retailers uh are finding it more and more challenging, and they cite property taxes and and rent as uh Uh, at times the reasons why they don't, you know, remain at a particular location, not just downtown, but other parts of the city are becoming expensive as well. But I hope what they, they look at is, uh, you know, the potential for that increased uh, customer base and client base. Um, I think it really bodes well for kind of the Eastern part of the downtown and, Mm. and where the growth is, is kind of moving towards. But having said that, you know, last week, um, Oxford Properties just did the groundbreaking for 1133 Melville, the stack. Uh, and that's, a, that's great news because that's, um, you know, uh, uh, on the western part of, of the downtown. Uh, so we're seeing growth um, in, in a variety of different locations. Uh, but our hope is that, uh, you know, small business will stay downtown primarily because they're going to have a much larger potential client base.
0: Because you mentioned the federal election with regard to transportation. With that coming up, what are some of the things that the DVBIA would like to see and will be raising awareness around?
1: Uh, congestion is the big one for us. Yeah. Uh, we'll, there's a campaign currently underway, uh, by, uh, by the mayor's council and by TransLink. Uh, they can't be, they can't be political, but certainly they're raising uh, the awareness of this issue of congestion and how it impacts us. So what we'll do as an organization is that, uh, we'll be there to, um, make our members aware of this issue and how they can be involved and, uh, you know, vote, uh, Vote responsibly. And vote <laughs> smart uh, in the upcoming federal election, and ask those that are running in their particular ridings as individuals, you know, what they're going to do to address this issue. Because uh, I, I certainly would put that at the top of the list. Uh, and of course, uh, housing affordability is is an issue as well. Uh, what we're doing as an organization is that we're actually going to be advocating uh, with um, the local council uh, to support a number of projects. Uh, that are happening in the city itself. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the former Denny site, uh, there's a proposal there to put rental and and market uh, rental. And we're gonna be advocating on behalf of that particular project. Uh, because again, if we've got 20,000 new people that will be working downtown over the course of the next five years, uh, you know, it's best to have them located as close as possible uh, to the downtown so that it's affordable for them to get to work.
0: This report provides a great snapshot of where we are today. How do you hope businesses use it and what are your plans for following up the report?
1: Yeah, so what, we're, what we've done is we've created uh, information that comes from 30, 30 different sources. Uh, some of the information is not readily available. Uh, my research person uh looked at open data and was able to collate information. We actually had a number of uh, subject experts uh, that were able to comment on it and uh, suggest to us, you know, what would be the best information to have in here. So what we want is it becomes a tool that uh, commercial real estate individuals use uh, that people that are making decisions about either growing or locating their business downtown uh, would refer to it. Um, we have lots of other data that did not make it in the report. So, uh, you know, contact us and, and we're able to provide them with additional information. But it's basically to help uh, companies make decisions. And it, we're also going to use it as an organization uh, in terms of where do we put our focus in terms of those issues that need uh, attention paid to. And I've just mentioned a few. Uh, housing affordability, uh, transit and homelessness.
0: And where can people find the report?
1: It's on our website at uh, dtvan.ca.
0: Perfect. Charles, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Haley. That's Charles Gautier, President and CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest-growing region in what we call our Asia 360 segment. Today, the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada's resident tech expert, Dongwoo Kim, joins me to discuss artificial intelligence and in Asia and how Canada fits into the picture. Dongwoo is a postgraduate research fellow with the foundation, and he joins me in studio today. Thanks for coming in.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to try and get a bit of a lay of the land. How interconnected is AI development around the world, and how siloed is it by country? Are we all working on this together, or do you find very different discoveries depending on which country you go to?
2: Um, Okay, so... It's hard for me to talk about, uh, to give a broad broad comprehensive overview, just because my focus has been mm. on Asia thus far. But uh, the consensus uh, seems to be that uh, there is a very limited uh, pool of people who have been working on this area of research, artificial intelligence. So um, in that sense, the community is very small, uh, and uh, a lot of countries are racing in order to get access to that limited pool of uh, people, right? Um, so in that sense, it is very interconnected, but then there is a big discrepancy of resources uh, depending on where you go. So for example, um, uh, Canada is a decision area where Canada is doing really great uh, Mm -hmm. because we've been been investing in uh, AI research uh, even when, countries like the United States uh, wasn't. So uh, we're seeing the benefits and we have the talents. But in case of um, uh, some of the countries in Asia, they don't have uh, that level of talent and they're not able to uh, engage with the technology as much as they like. So actually, ta- uh, um, that's kind of the lay of the land. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to dive into Asia because what we do in this segment and what I love about it is mm-hmm. I've learned you can't consider Asia as a region that's homogenous, mm-hmm. it is very different from that. So if we try and break apart the region, where are the leaders when it comes to AI and what mm-hmm. are some of the countries that are maybe lagging a bit behind?
2: Okay so uh i mean ai is a uh, pretty high tech uh it, it's a uh, high technology so uh naturally uh, countries with uh, the economic resources and then uh countries that have been investing in uh in research uh research and development are leading in it so china is one of uh, is actually one of the world leaders in artificial intelligence uh, along with the united states um it's incredible because um it's got a huge population and then the regulations around uh, around privacy isn't as uh, stringent as in the West Mm. and also the government has seen uh, this area as a priority so um, they've been working very closely with the uh, private sector and academia in order to really push forward uh, not just the research and development, but also the application of the technology uh, in day-to-day lives. So um, <laughs> this is not a very research thing to say, but if, even if you go on Facebook and then people who don't really engage with artificial intelligence or um, Asia uh, for that fact, um, they often post videos about oh, crazy AI stuff that I see, and then it's <laughs> often from China. Mm-hmm. Um, so China is a uh, is a really uh is a leading country and then uh Japan and South Korea they're um they're slightly different in the sense that uh this is not a technology that they Invested in heavily before, but um, they have the base, uh, the base to build, the foundation to build uh, upon, and uh, potentially become leaders. Mm. And that uh, they've been doing that since um, 2015, 2016. So um, we're seeing a lot of interesting developments in those two countries as well. And uh, those are the three countries that I focused on my uh, current phase of the research. And I'm going to be looking at uh, other parts of Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, Singapore would be a really interesting case too they're uh, really vocal in ai governance uh, at multilateral settings and such mm-hmm. but um that's gonna be uh, i'll have to talk about that maybe in six months or so <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll have to have you back yeah why is this an area that interests you and interests the foundation why is it important to sort of mm-hmm. analyze and understand ai in asia
2: okay so uh i mean first of all uh ai is a really hot topic nowadays but uh Everyone is talking about it. And sometimes it's exaggerated. It's not... uh, I feel like we often focus on issues like killer robots. (laughs) Uh, Like, we should. But then, like, we're talking about um, very dramatic things. But um ai is important because uh because of its non dramatic uh, aspects okay. we are already seeing ai in our lives so um I, I uh if you listen to uh like say the daily uh, from the new york times then they begin with an ad from zip Recruiter, and it's a company that reviews uh, cvs of people in order to recommend the best um uh candidate to the employer right? mm-hmm. and that's ai um, and Google is using AI to improve searches and, uh, ad placements. Um, and so is Facebook. Uh, so like, uh, AI, people often compare AI to electricity, how this is going to be the driver for a lot of things that we, uh, that we'll be using, but, uh, it'll be integrated to things that we already have and make things a lot faster and a lot more efficient. And, uh, uh, and, all of the countries around the world, they're looking at it, uh, they're following it with a uh, keen attention. But in Asia, um, where governments typically lead uh, economic and social policy a lot more uh, with a tight leash, they've... Uh, they really consider AI to be one of the top priorities. They see this as a way of uh, enhancing their uh, competitiveness at the global stage. And uh, from the foundation's perspective, this uh, like we're trying to be the catalyst between Asia and Canada. And this is going to be one of the major um, elements that's going to transform the Asian economy, and Canadians should take note of it. And uh, the other thing is that uh, Canada, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Canada is a leader in research and Asia, uh, in Asia, there is a lot of interest to access that, uh, uh, that Canadian talent uh which is very limited globally and um uh in in 2017 and 2018 for example um asian uh, according to our invest, investment monitor uh asian companies invested uh, close to 600 million dollars be- uh, in 2017 and 2018 mm. to set up research facilities here in Canada um and that makes a lot of sense because uh the asian companies they are really great at manufacturing our hardware, but not so much uh, like in the basic research of uh, AI or uh, creating algorithms that that can be integrated into the hardware. So um, there's a lot of attention uh, to uh, Canadian uh, AI talent and a lot of potential for us to do uh, great work moving forward.
0: It sounds like a big opportunity. Mm -hmm. Are there any concerns that come along with that opportunity? If we have these countries and these massive companies racing to get the best research, racing to get the best talent, that Uh is pretty small. What should we be wary of?
2: Um, So the first thing that we should think about is uh, looking uh, looking ahead and uh, trying to come up with a way of leveraging our current advantage into a long-term advantage for the nation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... When you, uh, when you review the plans of, uh, South Korean government, Chinese government, and Japanese government, they're talking about developing, uh, indigenous talent, as in like their own talent pool and, uh, accessing Canadian, uh, research talents might be a temporary measure. So how can we stay competitive, uh, moving forward. And that's a question that the government will have to grapple with. Uh, and also, of course, uh, ethical issues involving AI is huge. Um, AI is run uh, by data, data, um, and data is a very uh, social and political um, factor in it. Uh, It collects a lot of uh, personal information, um, and it's very different from other uh, resources that we use in order to run machinery or uh, to fuel our economy. So uh, learning how to engage with that domestically and also learning how to engage with uh, data globally with other nations who may not share the same kind of values that we have might be a, a bit of a challenge for us.
0: That's an interesting point. Now, you actually had the opportunity to visit Japan, South Korea, and China in preparing this research report, which isn't out yet, but it is coming from the foundation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are some of the things that struck you most about your trip? What are some of the key insights you took away from that experience?
2: Um, I'll, uh, I'll describe uh, uh, my feelings when I walked into a bookstore in Korea. So In Seoul, there is this huge bookstore in, uh, in Gwanghwamun Plaza, and um, that used to be my favorite place as a child to visit. But when I walked into that bookstore, um the best selling books were about the fourth Industrial Revolution, like mm-hmm. Klaus Schwab's uh, book on fourth Industrial Revolution, and he found out that his books were selling really well in Korea. so he published like a follow-up of the fourth Industrial Revolution uh, text that he created, but also other like um thought leaders in the country publishing books about, how uh, technologies of the fourth industrial revolution including uh ai will transform the economy and they are and that language of uh fourth industrial revolution artificial intelligence is a lot more present uh, in those nations because in canada i think we don't really speak about fourth industrial revolution as often like Mm -hmm. we we we're aware of it but it's not a um not a term that we use on a daily basis, but when you go to the bookstore, uh, when you read the news, like it is a term that appears a lot more often. And, um, the other thing that I uh, would like to highlight is that, um, these governments are feeling as if they're falling behind. Uh, and then, and that's really interesting because in, uh, in the past, these, uh, the Japanese, Korean, and Chinese governments, they really pushed forward, uh, fast-paced economic uh, growth plans because they felt that they were falling behind uh, com- in comparison to the rest of the world. And as a result, we have uh, three economic powerhouses in the region today, and that was achieved within a very short time period. Uh, and they're approaching AI with the same mindset. And they, uh, they feel like a, uh, this, uh, a sense that they're really, really falling behind and they need to do something about it in order to uh, you know be competitive.
0: Do they have national strategies around AI?
2: Yeah, they do. Um, so the Chinese government published the uh, next generation artificial intelligence plan. So that's where they announced, uh, their ambition to be number one in not just in AI research, but also norm setting and deployment. And they're saying that, uh, the, uh, AI, uh, that should be achieved by 2030 and, um, the scale of their, um, like AI sector ought to be about $200 billion by, uh by 2030 as well. Wow. So just to put that in scale, $200 billion, uh, that's one-fifth of the Canadian GDP, annual GDP.
0: That's significant. Mm-hmm. When it comes to these national strategies, and I'm not sure how much they differ country to country, but what are some of the things that get addressed typically? How specific are they? How well thought out are they? Mm-hmm. Are they more served as general guidance for the industry? What are some of the things you've noticed?
2: Uh, it is... <sighs> It is a uh, it is basically some sort of a vision, and then mm-hmm. there is a I should differentiate uh, China from Japan and Korea because they uh, they two have very different uh, political economy. But in case of China, this is a uh, it's very detailed, but also it's a blueprint. It's a vision for the rest of the nation to know what's going on. So this is a way uh, way for the government to uh, say we want to achieve this. Uh, and then the, uh, signaling the local government private sector and academia to uh, work together in order to deliver that so a researcher in chicago uh, referred to it as um, the government coming up with a wish list for christmas basically so um that's uh that's what they're doing and uh, it's Compared to other plans, it's very comprehensive. It's not just talking about funding research and development, but talking about the need to create uh, ethical guidelines, uh, talking about the, uh, like, integrating uh, the technology into different sectors of uh, society and all of the rules and regulations that have to be uh, reviewed in order to achieve what they want to achieve. So, like, w- when you talk about AI, it's not just about creating algorithms, but making sure that we have a society and economy where data flows freely and we can commercialize that so uh, they're talking about that too and um, in uh, the Korean one is really fascinating because they uh, they're not just touching on economic issues but also social issues Uh, pollution uh, air pollution is a major issue in Korea and in that plan it is highlighted that uh, AI ought to be used in order to fight air pollution Mm. uh and decrease uh, the level of air pollution by a certain percentage by uh in 5 years and such it's very um it's got numbers um and it's very specific in some aspects
0: interesting when we finally get to see your published research mm-hmm. how do you think it'll benefit businesses and organizations here in Canada how should they read it and use it
2: uh so as i mentioned earlier um there uh, canada and uh, east asian economies have uh, areas where they could complement each other, hardware and software, kind of a thing. And in uh, and in Canada, we have a lot of uh, talented AI scientists who would uh, who might be able to seize this opportunity to grow uh, to expand their business and then to expand into Asia. Um, in, for uh, for example, we have a, com- a company called D-Wave in Burnaby, and uh, they signed a huge uh, like a huge agreement with one of the major telecom companies in Korea. Uh, in order to provide, um, machine learning services to, uh, to them. And, uh, just about two days ago, um, Toronto-based company Data Metrics, uh, they signed, a, uh, another agreement with Korean conglomerate, uh, Lotte. And uh, I think it was valued at one, uh, one million or so, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So, um, there are these opportunities because, uh, AI is not just a thing that's out there, but you, uh, you have a business and you could implement, uh, integrate AI in order to make it more efficient, uh, and faster. So, uh, a lot of Korean, uh, Japanese and Chinese companies are looking into doing that, but they don't have the talent. And that's an opportunity for Canadian, um, Canadian businesses, but also for the government. I think there is a really interesting opening because this is a quite an interesting advantage in a, at a time when the technological is getting intertwined with uh, the geopolitical, as we can see in the Huawei 5G controversy with uh, the United States wanting to uh, block uh, that company from accessing um, the economies of their allies. So uh, moving forward, we'll see more of these conflicts, and AI will definitely be in the forefront of it. Uh, President Trump issued an executive order in February on like their own national um, AI strategy, where he explicitly said, we want to work with international partners who are like-minded. Mm. Um, so AI will become part of this uh, geopolitical tension between countries that disagree with each other. And... In Canada, um, we have world-leading scientists whose uh, opinions uh, carry weight in in that community. And we uh, we have a government that is aware of our disadvantage. Can we fuse them together in order to lead in regulation of um, the global regulation of the technology and also to ease some of these tensions between uh, major powers? Because we have the technological expertise, but also Canada traditionally has had that, you know, the middle power, the uh, uh, the trusted negotiator identity. So we can combine those to uh, play a role as a leader at the global stage.
0: Fascinating. Donglu, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about your research. Thank you. That's Dongwoo Kim. He is a postgraduate research fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen to all episodes at biv.com slash audio. More business news is available at biv.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.